My Maiden Brief by W.S. Gilbert Short Story Collection 100 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Michael Maggs My Maiden Brief Late on a certain May morning, as I was sitting at a modest breakfast in my residence chambers, Pump Court, Temple, my attention was claimed by a single knock at an outer door, common to the chambers of Felix Poulter and of myself, Horace Penderton, both barristers of law of the inner temple. The outer door was not the only article common to Poulter and myself. We also shared what Poulter, who wrote farces, was pleased to term a property clerk, who did nothing at all, and a practicable laundress, who did everything. There existed also a communion of interest in teacups, razors, gridirons, candlesticks, etc. For although neither of us was particularly well supplied with the necessities of domestic life, each happened to possess the very articles in which the other was deficient. So we got on uncommonly well together, each regarding his friend in the light of an indispensable other self. We had both embraced the higher walk of the legal profession, and were both patiently awaiting for the legal profession to return the compliment. The single knock raised some well-founded apprehensions in both our minds. Walker, I said to the property clerk, Sir, if that knock is for me, I'm out, you know. Of course, sir. And Walker, cried Poulter, Sir, if it's for me, I'm not at home. Poulter always rejoiced if he could manage to make the conversation partake of a Madisonian mortonic character. Mr. Walker opened the door. Mr. Penderton's a breakfasting with a master of the rolls, if it's him you want. And if it isn't, Mr. Poulter's with the Attorney-General. You don't say so, remarked the visitor. Then perhaps you'll give this to Mr. Penderton as soon as the master can make up his mind to part with him. And so saying, he handed to Walker a lovely parcel of brief paper, tied up neatly with a piece of red tape, and minuted, Central Criminal Court, May Sessions, 1860. The Queen on the Prosecution of Anne Black versus Elizabeth Briggs. Brief for the Prisoner. Mr. Penderton, one guinea. Poddle and Shaddery, Brompton Square. So, it had come at last. Only an old Bailey brief, it is true, but still a brief. We scarcely knew what to make of it. Poulter looked at me, and I looked at Poulter, and then we both looked at the brief. It turned out to be a charge against Elizabeth Briggs, widow, of picking pockets in an omnibus. It appeared from my instructions that my client was an elderly lady and religious. On the 2nd of April, then last, she entered an Islington omnibus with the view of attending a tea and prayer meeting in Bell Court, Islington. A woman in the omnibus missed her purse and accused Mrs. Briggs, who sat on her right, of having stolen it. The poor soul, speechless with horror at the charge, was dragged out of the omnibus 
and as the purse was found in a pocket on the left-hand side of her dress, she was given into custody. As it was stated by the police that she had been in trouble before, the infatuated magistrate who examined her committed her for trial. "'There, my boy, your fortune's made,' said Poulter. "'I don't see the use of my taking it,' I said. "'There's nothing to be said for her.' "'Not take it? Won't you, though? I'll see about that. You shall take it, and you shall get her off, too. Highly respectable old lady, attentive member of a well-known congregation, parson to speak to her character, no doubt, as honest as you are.' but the purse was found upon her. Well, sir, and what of that? Poor woman left-handed, and pocket in left of dress. Robbed woman right-handed, and pocket in right of dress. Poor woman sat on right of robbed woman. Robbed woman, replacing her purse, slipped it accidentally into poor woman's pocket. Ample folds of dress, you know, crinolines overlapping and all that. Splendid defence for you. But she's an old hand, it seems. The police know her. Police always do. Always know everybody, police maxim. Swear anything they will. Poulter really seems so sanguine about it that I began to look at the case hopefully and to think something might be done with it. He talked to me to such effect that he not only convinced me there was a good deal to be said in Mrs. Briggs's favour, but I actually began to look upon her as an innocent victim of circumstantial evidence, and determined that no effort should be wanting on my part to procure her release from a degrading but unmerited confinement. Of the firm of Poddle and Shaddery, I knew nothing whatever, and how they came to entrust Mrs. Briggs's case to me, I can form no conception. As we, for Poulter took so deep a personal interest in the success of Mrs. Briggs's case, that he completely identified himself, in my mind, with her fallen fortunes, resolved to go to work in a thoroughly business-like manner, we determined to commence operations by searching for the firm of Poddle and Shaddery in the law list. To our dismay, the law list of that year had no record of Poddle, neither did Shaddery find a place in its pages. This was serious, and Poulter did not improve matters by suddenly recollecting that he had once heard an old QC say that, as a rule, the farther west of Temple Bar the shadier the attorney. So that, assuming Poulter's friend to have come to a correct conclusion on this point, a firm dating officially from Brompton Square, and whose name did not appear in Mr. Dalbiac's law list, was a legitimate object of suspicion. But Poulter, who took a hopeful view of anything which he thought might lead to good farce situations, and who probably imagined that my first appearance on any stage as counsel for the defence was likely to be rich in suggestions, remarked that they might possibly have been certificated since the publication of the last law list. And as for the dictum about Temple Bar, why, the case of Poddle and Shaddery, might be one of those very exceptions whose existence is necessary to the proof of every general rule. 
So Poulter and I determined to treat the firm in a spirit of charity and accept their brief. As the May sessions of Oya and Termina did not commence until the 8th, I had four clear days in which to study my brief and to prepare my defence. Besides, there was a murder case and a desperate burglary or two which would probably be taken first, so that it was unlikely that the case of the poor soul whose cause I had espoused would be tried before the 12th. So I had plenty of time to master what Poulter and I agreed was one of the most painful cases of circumstantial evidence ever submitted to a British jury. And I really believe that by the first day of the May sessions, I was intimately acquainted with the details of every case of pocket-picking reported in Cox's criminal cases and Buckler's shorthand reports. On the night of the 11th, I asked Bodger of Bracenose, Norton of Gray's Inn, Cadbury of the Lancers, and three or four other men, college chums principally, to drop in at Pump Court and hear a rehearsal of my speech for the defence in the forthcoming co-celebra of the Queen on the Prosecution of Anne Black versus Elizabeth Briggs. At nine o'clock they began to appear, and by ten all were assembled. Pipes and strong waters were produced, and Norton of Grace was forthwith raised to the bench by the style and dignity of Sir Joseph Norton, one of the barons of Her Majesty's Court of Exchequer. Cadbury, Bodger and another, represented the jury. Wilkinson of Lincoln's Inn was counsel for the prosecution. Poulter was clerk of arraigns, and Walker, my clerk, was the prosecutrix. Everything went satisfactorily. Wilkinson broke down in his speech for the prosecution. His witness prevaricated and contradicted himself in a preposterous manner, and my speech for the defence was voted to be one of the most masterly specimens of forensic ingenuity that had ever come before the notice of the court. And the consequence was that the prisoner, inadequately represented by a statuette of the Greek slave, was discharged, and Norton, who would have looked more like a baron of the exchequer if he had looked less like a tipsy churchwarden, remarked that she left the court without a stain upon her character. The court then adjourned for refreshments, and the conversation took a general turn. After canvassing the respective merits of May it please your lordship, and may it please you, my lord, as an introduction to a council speech, a discussion which terminated in favour of the latter form as being a trifle more independent in its character. I remember proposing that the health of Elizabeth Briggs should be drunk in a solemn and respectful bumper, and as the evening wore on, I'm afraid I became exceedingly indignant with Cadbury because he had taken the liberty of holding up to public ridicule an imaginary and highly undignified carte de visite of my unfortunate client. The 12th of May, big with the fate of Penderton and of Briggs, dawned in the usual manner. At ten o'clock, Poulter and I drove up in wigs and gowns to the old bailey, as well because we kept those imposing garments at our chambers, not having any use for them elsewhere, 
as to impress passers-by and the loungers below the court with a conviction that we were not merely Old Bailey Council, but had come down from our usual sphere of action at Westminster to conduct a case of more than ordinary complication. Impressed with a sense of propriety of presenting an accurate professional appearance, I had taken remarkable pains with my toilette. I had the previous morning shaved off a flourishing moustache and sent Walker out for half a dozen serious collars, as substitutes for the unprofessional lay-downs I usually wore. I was dressed in a correct evening suit and wore a pair of thin gold spectacles, and Poulter remarked that I looked the sucking bencher to the life. Poulter, whose interest in the accuracy of my get-up was almost fatherly, had totally neglected his own. He made his appearance in the raggedest of beards and moustaches under his wig, and the sloppiest of cheap drab lounging coats under his gown. I modestly took my place in the back row of the seats allocated to the bar. Poulter took his at the very front, in order to have an opportunity, at the close of the case, of telling the leading counsel in the hearing of the attorneys the name and address of the young and rising barrister who had just electrified the court. In various parts of the building I detected Cadbury, Wilkinson and others, who had represented judge, jury and counsel on the preceding evening. They had been instructed by Poulter, who had had some experience of packing a house, to distribute themselves about the court, and, at the termination of the speech for the defence, to give vent to their feelings in that applause which is always so quickly suppressed by the officers of a court of justice. I was rather annoyed at this, as I did not consider it altogether legitimate, and my annoyance was immensely increased when I found that my three elderly maiden aunts, to whom I had been foolish enough to confide the fact of my having to appear on the twelfth, were seated in state in that portion of the court allotted to friends of the bench and bar, and busied themselves by informing everybody within whisper-shot that I was to defend Elizabeth Briggs, and that this was my first brief. It was some little consolation, however, to find that the unceremonious manner in which the facts of the cases that preceded mine were explained and commented upon by judge, jury, and counsel caused those ladies great uneasiness, and indeed compelled them, on one or two occasions, to beat an unceremonious retreat. At length the clerk of arraigns called the case of Briggs, and, with my heart in my mouth, I began to recollect the opening words of my speech for the defence. But I was interrupted in that hopeless task by the appearance of Elizabeth in the dock. She was a pale, elderly widow, rather buxom, and remarkably neatly dressed in slightly rusty mourning. Her hair was arranged in two sausage curls, one on each side of her head, and looped in two festoons over the forehead. She appeared to feel her position acutely, and although she did not weep, her red eyes showed evident traces of recent tears. 
She grasped the edge of the dock and rocked backwards and forwards, accompanying the motion with a low moaning sound that was extremely touching. Poulter looked back at me with an expression which plainly said, If ever an innocent woman appeared in that dock, that woman is Elizabeth Briggs. The clerk of arraigns now proceeded to charge the jury. Gentlemen of the jury, the prisoner at the bar, Elizabeth Briggs, is indicted for that she did, on the 2nd April last, steal from the person of Anne Black a purse containing ten shillings and fourpence, the monies of the said Anne Black. There is another count to the indictment, charging her with having received the same, knowing it to have been stolen. To both of these counts, the prisoner has pleaded not guilty, and it is your charge to try whether she is guilty or not guilty. Then, to the bar, who appears in this case? Nobody replying in behalf of the Crown, I rose and remarked that I appeared for the defence. A counsel here said that he believed the brief of the prosecution was entrusted to Mr Porter, but that that gentleman was engaged at the Middlesex Sessions in a case which was likely to occupy several hours, and that he, Mr Porter, did not expect that Briggs's case would come on that day. A consultation then took place between the judge and the clerk of arraigns. At its termination, the latter functionary said, Who is the junior counsel present? To my horror, up jumped Poulter and said, I think it's very likely that I am the junior counsel in court. My name is Poulter, and I was only called last term. A titter ran through the crowd. But Poulter, whose least fault was bashfulness, only smiled benignly at those around him. Another whispering between judge and clerk. At its conclusion, the clerk handed a bundle of papers to Poulter, saying at the same time, Mr. Poulter, his lordship wishes you to conduct the prosecution. Certainly, said Poulter, and he opened the papers, glanced at them, and rose to address the court. He began by requesting that the jury would take into consideration the fact that he had only at that moment been placed in possession of the brief for prosecution of the prisoner at the bar, who appeared, from what he could gather from a glance at his instructions, to have been guilty of as heartless a robbery as ever disgraced humanity. He would endeavour to do his duty, but he feared that, at so short notice, he should scarcely be able to do justice to the brief with which he had been most unexpectedly entrusted. He then went on to state the case in a masterly manner, appearing to gather the facts, with which, of course, he was perfectly intimate, from the papers in his hand. He commented on the growing frequency of omnibus robberies, and then went on to say, "'Gentlemen, I am at no loss to anticipate the defence on which my learned friend will base his hope of inducing you to acquit that wretched woman. I don't know whether it has ever been your misfortune to try criminal cases before, but if it has, 
you will be able to anticipate his defence as certainly as I can. He will probably tell you, because the purse was found in the left-hand pocket of that miserable woman's dress, that she is left-handed, and on that account wears her pocket on the left side. And he will then, if I am not very much mistaken, ask the prosecutrix if she is not right-handed. And lastly, he will ask you to believe that the prosecutrix, sitting on the prisoner's left, slipped the purse accidentally into the prisoner's pocket. But, gentlemen, I need not remind you that the facts of these omnibus robberies are always identical. The prisoner always is left-handed, the prosecutrix is always right-handed, and the prosecutrix always does slip the purse accidentally into the prisoner's pocket instead of her own. My lord will tell you that this is so, and you will know how much faith to place upon such a defence, should my friend think proper to set it up. He ended by entreating the jury to give the case their attentive consideration, and stated that he relied confidently upon an immediate verdict of guilty. He then sat back, saying to the usher, Call Anne Black. Anne Black, who was in court, shuffled up into the witness-box and was duly sworn. Poulter then drew out her evidence bit by bit, helping her with leading questions of the most flagrant description. I knew that I ought not to allow this, but was too horrified at the turn matters had taken to interfere. At the conclusion of the examination-in-chief, Poulter sat down triumphantly, and I rose to cross-examine. "'You are right-handed, Mrs. Black?' Laughter. "'Oh, yes, sir.' "'Very good. I've nothing else to ask you.' So Mrs. Black stood down, and the omnibus conductor took her place. His evidence was not material, and I declined to cross-examine. The policeman who had had charge of the case followed the conductor, and his evidence was to the effect that the purse was found in her pocket. I felt that this witness ought to be cross-examined, but not having anything ready, I allowed him to stand down. A question, I am sorry to say, then occurred to me, and I requested his lordship to allow the witness to be recalled. You say you found the purse in her pocket, my man? Yes, sir. Did you find anything else? Yes, sir. What? Two other purses, a watch with the bow broken, three handkerchiefs, two silver pencil cases, and a hymn-book. Roars of laughter. You may stand down. That is the case, my lord, said Poulter. It was now my turn to address the court. What could I say? I believe I observed that, undeterred by my learned friend's opening speech, I did intend to set up the defence he had anticipated. I set it up, but I don't think it did much good. The jury, who were perfectly well aware that this was Poulter's first case, had no idea but that I was an old hand at it, and no doubt thought me an uncommonly clumsy one. 
They had made every allowance for Poulter, who needed nothing of the kind, and they made none at all for me, who needed all they had at their disposal. I soon relinquished my original line of defence, and endeavoured to influence a jury by vehement assertions of my personal conviction of the prisoner's innocence. I warmed to my subject, for Poulter had not anticipated me here, and I believe I grew really eloquent. I think I staked my professional reputation on her innocence, and I sat down expressing my confidence in a verdict that would restore that unfortunate lady to a circle of private friends, several of whom were waiting in the court below, several of whom were waiting in the court below to testify to her excellent character. "'Call witnesses to Mrs Briggs' character,' I said. "'Witnesses to the character of Briggs,' shouted the crier. The call was repeated three or four times outside the court, but there was no response. "'No witnesses to Briggs' character here, my lord,' said the crier. Of course I knew this very well, but it sounded respectable to expect them. "'Dear, dear,' I said, "'this is really most unfortunate. They must have mistaken the day.' "'Shouldn't wonder,' observed Poulter, rather dryly. I was not altogether sorry that I had no witnesses to adduce, as I am afraid that they would scarcely have borne the test of Poulter's cross-examination. Besides, if I had examined witnesses for the defence, Poulter would have been entitled to a reply, of which privilege he would, I am sure, avail himself. Mr. Baron Bounderby proceeded to sum up, grossly against the prisoner, as I then thought, but, as I have since had reason to believe, most impartially. He went carefully over the evidence, and told the jury that if they believed the witnesses for the prosecution, they should find the prisoner guilty, and if they did not, why, they should acquit her. The jury were then directed by the crier to consider their verdict, which they couldn't possibly have done, for they immediately returned a verdict of guilty. The prisoner not having anything to say in arrest of judgment, the learned judge proceeded to pronounce sentence, inquiring, first of all, whether anything was known about her. A policeman stepped forward and stated that she had twice been convicted at this court of felony and once at the Middlesex sessions. Mr. Baron Bounderby, addressing the prisoner, told her that she had been most properly convicted on the clearest possible evidence, that she was an accomplished thief and a most dangerous one, and that the sentence of the court was that she be imprisoned and kept to hard labour for the space of eighteen calendar months. No sooner had the learned judge pronounced this sentence than the poor soul stooped down, and, taking off a heavy boot, flung it at my head as a reward for my eloquence on her behalf, accompanying the assault with a torrent of invective against my abilities as a counsel and my line of defence. The language in which her oration was couched was perfectly shocking. The boot missed me but hit a reporter on the head, 
And on this fact I am disposed to attribute the unfavourable light in which my speech for the defence was placed in two or three of the leading daily papers the next morning. I hurried out of court as quickly as I could, and, hailing a hansom, I dashed back to chambers, pitched my wig at a bust of Lord Brougham, bowled over Mrs Briggs' prototype with my gown, packed up and started that evening for the west coast of Cornwall. Halter, on the other hand, remained in town, and got plenty of business in that and the ensuing session, and afterwards on circuit. He is now a flourishing old Bailey council, while I am as briefless as ever. End of My Maiden Brief by W. S. Gilbert